0: Good morning. Uh, I had um, an opportunity this week that I don't get very often uh, to visit with my brother. Um, My brother and his wife live in Wisconsin, and uh, so we only get to see each other um, really kind of just at Christmas time, uh, which is too bad because my brother and I really like each other uh, and like a lot of the same things and like hanging out, so we Uh, He and his wife came to town this week, and we went to a couple of bookstores, and we went to a couple of restaurants, and I took him to Jungle Gyms, and it blew his mind, and um, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Uh, And I am always excited when I get to um, spend some time with family. Um, That is always, for me, that is always a, a really special thing. And so uh, we enter into today uh, talking about family, and for me, that is something that is exciting. I I really like family. Um, For some of you, that may also be the case. You really love family. You love spending time with family. Family is energizing to you. Uh, For some, uh, you may have a very strained relationship with family. And so when you hear me say that we're going to talk about family, that may create some tension for you or... Uh, perhaps um, there's just some some conflicting emotions because family for you is complex. Um, that is a complex scenario, but that is uh, what we're going to be talking about today. We are in our new series talking about a church more like Jesus, and um, we have been looking last week and this week at two metaphors that the, the Bible uses, that the New Testament uses to talk about the church. Last week, we talked about the body, and Marty... Um, really uh, did a a fantastic job and uh, took that in places I would never have imagined to talk about um, suffering alongside the body. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer alongside of it and what that means. And today we want to talk about one of the other great metaphors the New Testament uses, uh, which is family. Um, Paul uses... The metaphor of family pretty regularly throughout the new testament not only does paul peter does as well in fact um, the words on our chalkboard are from um, the book of first peter where peter talks about family um, and i recognize as we get into this that as we talk about family especially in connection with a church that um that is not a new concept churches have talked about um, themselves in terms of family for generations Uh, but that churches have not always done that well, or at least not lived that out well. And so sometimes the concept of family has caused some church hurt, um, where uh, churches have said, oh, we're going to handle this in the family instead of really bringing to light some some really terrible things, some abusive things that the church has done. Calling in authorities when needed to. No, no, no. We'll just keep it in the family. Uh, other times, churches or members of churches have been really pretty manipulative with each other, saying, "Well, of course you'll do this for me. After all, we're family, right?" Um, and and so sometimes that that family language becomes manipulative and um, becomes uh, even traumatic and hurtful, which is um, which is is sad. It's it's uh, unconscionable that that happens and what we uh, have to wrestle with then is do we walk away from the language and metaphors that the bible gives us or do we seek to redeem them Uh, and for me my choice is always to try to redeem and so we want to go in today to talk about the church as a metaphor um, uh, of family and see what paul has to say about that and hopefully that will be a redeeming thing uh, for this metaphor, if it is a complex uh, one for you, we're going to take a look uh, today in order to, to examine this metaphor at the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter today, 1 Thessalonians 2, and it's the only place we're going to be today. So if you have your Bible with you, feel free to open up to 1 Thessalonians 2, or it'll be up on the wall behind me in a minute. Uh, just some background on 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is becoming one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Uh, It is a very interesting glimpse into the life of the early church, and that is because 1 Thessalonians is, as far as we have been able to determine, the earliest of all of Paul's writings. As far as we're able to, to judge that, what the scholars and experts have been able to tell us, they believe that 1 Thessalonians is the first of all of Paul's letters written in the Bible. In fact, it's the earliest of all of the books of the Bible to be written as far as we're able to understand, and that also makes it the earliest Christian writing that we have. It was written somewhere between 49 and 51 AD in that time frame, uh, we think. Uh, none of us were there, so we don't know for sure, but we believe somewhere between 49 and 51 is when it was written just after Paul had started the church In Thessalonica, that story is in Acts. Uh, He moves on from Thessalonica to Corinth and then writes the letter back to them after he has left. We don't know quite how long after he has left, but he's in Corinth for a, a few years, and so it's somewhere in that period of time that he writes back to the church in Thessalonica to remind them of the things that he had to teach them while he was there among them. And so, because 1 Thessalonians is, as far as we're able to determine, the earliest Christian writing that we have, it is a fascinating look into how the first church began to think about itself and its mission and its place in the world. And in, um, inside of chapter 2, Paul uses family language quite a lot to talk about this new church that he has just started. So, let's dive in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're just going to read the whole thing. Uh, It's about 20 verses long, and then we'll go back and talk about it a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, Uh, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak." not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or with pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children." So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, blameless our conduct was toward you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you, live, uh, that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you had heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own compatriots as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Thus, they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but wrath has overtaken them at last. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you in person, not in heart, we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face, For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, wanted to again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and our joy. So this uh, particular passage of scripture is sandwiched inside of a prayer Uh, It is, for all intents and purposes, chapter two uh, of this book is a parenthetical thought uh, inside of a prayer. That's a long parenthetical thought. Paul is the king of run on sentences and run on passages. That's just how he is. Um, Paul is not writing alone. You will have noticed the we language throughout the chapter. And then at the end, he says, certainly I, Paul, begins singular. Paul is writing along with. Silas and Timothy, his um, traveling companions, the three of them were there to help start the church. The three of them write this letter. They do so not as an individual, but as a collective. Um, uh, and that is pretty normal of Paul's letters. Paul doesn't write most of his letters by himself, he writes it in companionship with others around them. And as Paul writes this thought to the church, this chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he uses multiple family metaphors. In fact, he uses five of them. There are five different family metaphors that show up in chapter two. I want to hit them all very quickly uh, and help us see them so that we can understand perhaps a little better what kind of family the church is supposed to be. Uh, The first of his family metaphors shows up at the very beginning of the chapter, in the very first verse, and is repeated several times. It's the phrase, brothers and sisters. That's the first of his family metaphors. In the Greek, the word is uh, just brothers. It's a masculine noun, but it is a gender neutral greeting. You use it to greet everybody, uh, whether they are male or female. In a group of people, it's this word. The older English translations sometimes translate this as brethren, which is a fantastic church word uh, that we don't use a whole lot anymore. Uh, But Paul refers to those he's writing to as his brothers and sisters. They are his family. Uh, In another of his early works, in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 28, Paul will say that in Christ, there is no longer any Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. When Paul uses this word brothers, that we translate in modern English as brothers and sisters, he is not thinking exclusively of only the male people he is writing to. As Paul greets the people in Corinth as siblings, he does so without any thought to hierarchy. When Paul greets the church as family, as brothers and sisters, he does so without any thought to status or level within the church. As far as Paul is concerned, as he writes and as he calls them, his brothers and sisters, over and over and over again, they are on equal footing with each other and with him. Paul puts himself as one of the brothers. Paul, Silas, and Timothy put themselves as brothers to the church. And so in their understanding of the church as family, uh, there is no sense of hierarchy in the church structure there is instead equity and equality among the people of the church. And so when we think about the church as family, one of the things that we should understand is that the church is a family of equals. The church is a family of equals. None of us are are better than anyone else. None of us are elevated to a higher position than any else, no matter uh, whether we serve up front or behind the scenes, whether we serve uh, with some kind of a titled role or whether we serve without title, whether we serve uh, at the building or whether we serve in our workplaces or whether we serve in our homes, uh, we are all brothers and sisters in equality with each other. That is the first of the family metaphors that Paul uses. The second one uh, is a little hard to see. It's in verse 7 of the text, uh, and in the translation that we read on Sunday mornings, um, it is hidden. In the translation that, that um, I just read, uh, Paul says that we, he was gentle among you like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. The word gentle is the wrong word. Um, and, and this is gonna be really tricky, and if you wanna know more about this, the after party is gonna be a great place to talk about it. Almost every English translation that exists uses the word gentle. And I am convinced that they're wrong, and so are most scholars. Scholars and translators fight over this. Um, The the oldest copies of the Bible that we have, the oldest Greek that we have for the Bible, translates this word differently. And and one of the English translations where it comes out, I think probably better, is the New International Version. So Drew, can you throw that up on the screen real quick? Here's how the New International Version translates verse 7. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. Um, And and even in the NIV, that verse is broken in half and and there's a period midway through it and the the second half of the verse actually starts a new paragraph in the New International Version. Uh, The New International Version ends one paragraph with saying we were like little children and begins the next paragraph with saying we were like a nurse. Um, Paul uses two metaphors immediately back to back, two family metaphors, children, nurse. It's kind of metaphorical whiplash Again, you can blame Paul for that. He just does weird things with language all the time. The word here is actually not even little children. It's the word for infants. It is the smallest of all children. We were among you like infants. This word is used at the end of a few verses where Paul is um, giving a, a defense of his innocence. He says, We were among you sharing the gospel without guile, without greed, without um, any kind of trickery. We were like infants among you. Paul uses this metaphor um, in the church of himself and Silas and Timothy uh, to indicate um, their innocence, their gentleness their lack of being able to deceive anyone. So we are, we are like innocent beings among you. We have no ulterior motives whatsoever. We weren't trying to fool you. We were like helpless babies among you, which ought to give us some understanding of the metaphor of church's family. As we interact with each other, how should we interact? Well, we should interact in innocence. Without any kind of trickery, without any kind of ulterior motives, without any kind of greed, without trying to get anything out of each other, we interact with each other in, in innocence. In fact, Jesus calls us to this in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, he says, well, I want you to be as wise as serpents. I want you to be as innocent as doves. That's a, that's a hard line to walk, to be both wise and innocent. But that's what we're called to. We're called to a level of innocence, especially in our interactions with each other. And we're not called to, to guile, to trickery, to obfuscation, to ulterior motives. And so uh, as, as a family of people, the family of God ought to be a kind of what you see is what you get kind of people. We're honest with each other, uh, not necessarily Brutally in your face, honest. Although there is a time and place for that, but certainly honest with each other in innocence and in gentleness. Paul says we were like infants among you, and then of course he goes on to the next metaphor: we were like a nurse among you. That that kind of metaphorical whiplash that occurs there and and here, the New International adds the word mother. The word mother is not there. It's as a nurse. No English translation. Sidebar, no English translation is perfect, which is infuriating, but that's the way it is. Uh, So if you have a favorite English translation that you particularly like, that's great. Every now and again, read something in another translation because sometimes it gives you a little bit of a different look and you go, oh, hey, that's what that means. That sounds a little bit different. Uh, It kind of helps us fill in our understanding of the scripture a little bit. So the New International is nursing mothers back in the NRSV, which we used as our primary text this morning. It's just as a nurse, as a nurse among you. Paul seems to intentionally use the phrase nurse. Uh, It is a unique word in the Bible. It is only used here. It is not used anywhere else in Scripture. Um, However, it is a common word in other Greek writing. It refers to a particular group of people who gave their whole lives over to being nurses for children in other families. They became part of the family. They uh, became like an extended part of the family, like an a close aunt that lived with the family. They took care of the children, not just making sure that they were fed and bathed and clothed, but helping to make sure that they were educated, helping to make sure that they could go through their their days and grew up. And even into adulthood, they would sometimes stay with that family, uh, continuing to care for, provide, and offer instruction to the children of that family. These nurses were kind of um, held in reverence and awe In the Roman world, um, and were thought of as a, a group of people who were completely selfless. They did not think of their own gain in any way, instead, they were life giving, they were self sacrificial in order to nurture and bring sustenance. Paul says, that's how we were among you. We shared the gospel with you in this this way of being like a nurse. We were self-sacrificial to the point where we would give everything we have. We didn't want to be a burden to you, Paul says. And he uses this, this very feminine imagery, by the way, without any hint of embarrassment whatsoever. And it's not the only place in the New Testament where Paul does that. He will use either feminine or motherly imagery of himself at least two other times that I'm aware of in the New Testament. For Paul, the church as a whole in the metaphor of family needs that component, needs a component of self-sacrifice, of nurturing, of life-giving goodness that is found in this nurse metaphor. Without that, the church cannot be what it was called to be. And so as a church, as we think what kind of church ought we to be? We ought to be a church where we are self-sacrificial, where we are life-giving, where we are intent on nurturing each other to help each other grow into who God has created us to be. The fourth of the metaphors is far more easy to see. Paul says that you remember how we were among you like a father. He comes right out and says it. I was like a father among you. We were like fathers among you. Um, And that one might feel like, oh, yeah, Paul, of course, would identify himself as a father. Like, that makes sense to us. Um, Except that he doesn't do it all that often. He only calls himself a father in his writings three times. Isn't that interesting? He uses feminine imagery for himself three times. He uses father imagery for himself three times in all of the New Testament. There's this, this balance, this equality of using these metaphors. I think it's very interesting. Uh, so he calls himself a father, but he flips the cultural expectation when he does. In the Roman world, there was a system um, that we know today as the pater Familia system. The pater Familia system. The father is the head of the family. And how this works is that the father, the, the, the highest male in the family, has kind of ultimate authority over his family and over all of his employees and over all of his household, over all of the other men, women, children that make up his, his household. And if you are part of the family, your job, essentially, is to give obedience and honor to the father. And the father, then, is supposed to give protection and um, resources to you as his family. And this goes up and up and up. An individual family might be under a group of families. A group of families might be under a city administrator. A city, group of city administrators might be over a regional governor, or under a regional governor. A group of governors would, of course, be under the Senate. The Senate itself would be underneath Caesar as the ultimate father. And so in the Roman world, Caesar is considered the ultimate father. Think about that, Caesar as the image of father. Caesar, the conqueror, as the image of father. Caesar, to whom you have to, to, you have to bow down in prayer, your life is forfeit. Caesar, to whom you, you have to give up resources and income. You're, you're forced to, you're made to. It's expected, it's, it's not tolerated not to. And so Paul comes along and says, we were like a father, but what kind of father were we? We were like a father that was encouraging to you. We were like a, a father that pleaded with you. you. We did not demand things from you. We urged and encouraged. There's a sense of deep love and compassion when Paul uses the father metaphor. And that's because fa- Paul has learned to be a father, not from Caesar, but Paul has learned to be a father from God. God is a God who loves his children who sends honor to his children, who gives life to his children and gives good things to his children. A lot of times our view of God, I think, is far more in line with the paterfamilias Caesar as father system. We have to do these things for God or God will be angry at us. But instead, God comes to us and says, I want to provide for you. I want to love you. I want to honor you. I I want to, to help you be who you've been created to be in my image. Paul says, this is the kind of father that I am with you. And so as we think about church and the metaphor of father, we think about church um, as a place of encouragement, a place of helping each other become who we're created to be. The last of the metaphors comes at the end of the chapter. Paul says, I was separated from you and so I became like an orphan. That's our final family metaphor. I'm like an orphan. When I'm separated from you, orphans have absolutely no status in the ancient world. They are marginalized. In fact, James says that true faith is caring for the orphans. Don't be alarmed. These are our people that are going to the other church. It's fine. We're not mad. We're not mad. Thank you, Meg. I appreciate that. I thought I could do it by 10:40. I'm so close.) Uh, He says that we were like orphans because we were separated from you. Orphans have no status in that world. They're marginalized. James says that true faith is caring for orphans because orphans cannot care for themselves. And so being away from the body makes Paul feel like an orphan because the church is his family. The church is his chosen family. Orphans don't don't have biological families. Their only family comes by by being chosen and by choosing in return. When Paul uses that phrase, what he's saying is that, that I miss you so much because you are my chosen family. You're my people. Paul will write in Romans that we have been adopted, each one of us, into God's family. We have been chosen by God to be his. I, I don't know what your family is like. I don't, I don't know what kind of a family you have. I, I, maybe you have great relationships with every member of your family. Maybe, maybe not all the members of your family are with you anymore and, and you mourn them. Maybe you have good relationships with some and, and not so good relationships with others. Maybe, maybe family is a struggle for you. Maybe you haven't seen your family in a long time. Maybe family is just very complex and it's hurtful to talk about it. I don't know what kind of family you have, but I know that God has been at work since the time of Jesus creating a family. Creating a family that is a very peculiar and particular kind of family. And inviting each and every one of us into it. And it is a beautiful and different and not always perfect kind of family but it is a family that is built on equality and mutual dependence. It is a family that is centered around innocence and nurture and encouragement. It is a family of people who are chosen and who have chosen to be a part of that family. And it is a family on a mission for God, a family that is moving more toward Jesus. That is the kind of family that Paul outlines in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's the kind of family that, that I have at times known the church to be and the kind of family that I long for the church to be. And so if you are here and you are part of UCC, whether you've been here for a long, long time or just a few weeks or somewhere in between, um i want you to know that god has made a family for you it is the church it is not always perfect but it is what he has given us it is a place where we can be nurtured and where we can grow where we can move together and work together as we choose to be a part of it with those things in mind we want to come into our time of communion as a family uh, when I was growing up, uh, we did all sorts of things. We were going all sorts of different directions. Dad was always doing something. Mom was always doing something. My brother and my sister and I had all sorts of things that were going on, but the kind of the one thing that we did together as a family, we always had dinner together. That was in, in our house, in the house I grew up in, we had dinner together. And dinner was always weird and it was always wonderful and we, we said a lot of movie quotes that my mother didn't get and, and we talked about our days at school and. Dad and mom talked about things at church that we were too young to understand, but we always had dinner together. We always came to the table. And at the table, we knew we were loved. So that's what we want to do now. As a family, as a church, as a community, as a group of people, we want to come to the table. And our hope is that you will know at the table that you are loved, that you are loved by the God who made you, that you are loved by the Christ who gave his life to save you, that you are loved by the spirit that indwells you, and that you are loved by this family that will choose you to the best of our ability. We choose you to love you and to work with you, to be a source of encouragement and a source of life to you. We hope that as you come to the table every week that you experience those things. That's my desire today so the table is set for you it is not my table it's not even ucc's table it's christ's table the invitation is his and he prepared the meal from his own sacrifice from his own body and blood so in just a minute we'll come and receive the elements of bread and juice and when we have all received we'll take them together before we do that we come every week as a community and we confess that we are not yet who God has called us to be. There's still work to be done on our family. So if you are willing, would you please join me standing and we'll confess together before we come to the table.